Thanks for joining us on the Hope Podcast. Hope Community Church exists to love people where they are and help them grow in their relationship with Jesus Christ. By pursuing this relationship together, we can change the world. We have multiple locations, including an online service found at gethope.tv. If you're not from the greater Raleigh-Durham area in North Carolina or near our Agape campus in Haiti, we'd love to still have you be a part of what Hope is up to through our online services. If you do live in our physical area, go to our website at gethope.net to check out where our campuses are located and our service times. Please like and share this with your friends or family. We are so glad you stopped by. Well, what's up, Hope? How are we? Good. I am excited to be here. I don't know if it's something I ate. I don't know if I got enough sleep. If it's the sermon, I'm just happy to be up here. I'm excited to share what God has given me. A special welcome to those of you joining us online in the triangle across the state, across the world. Special welcome to those of you joining us at one of our physical campuses. So Apex or Morrisville or Garner or here at the Raleigh campus. We are wrapping up our series that we've been calling Enough. And I've loved it every single week. The first week uh, we learned uh, about Generosity. We learned that if we want to expand God's kingdom, if we want to make an impact in this world, then we have to take some intentional steps towards generosity. We have to put a number to enough. We have to figure out how much is enough to live on and enjoy and with the rest invest in some kingdom building initiatives. We learned that God doesn't want to get your money. He just doesn't want your money to get you. And I had lots of people come up to me afterwards and, and share throughout the week they gave for their very first time. They upped their giving. So it's so cool to see how God worked in your heart uh, in that area. Last week, Clay did an amazing job, didn't he? Did you guys like Clay last week? He did an awesome job talking about that limited resource called time. And he said, count your days so that your days can count. And he talked about how to use that limited resource to draw closer to God and help others draw closer to God as well. Uh, well, this week, uh, Jesus is going to show us one more thing. One more tool that we have at our disposal, that we have in our tool belts, that we can use to expand God's kingdom, that we can use to grow God's family and make an impact. And it's probably a tool, it's probably something that you have never thought about before. Uh, in fact, it's something Jesus is gonna say that Christians are very bad at using and the world is actually really good at using. And Jesus is going to show us what this tool is in a really weird way. He's going to tell us an absolutely crazy parable. In fact, we're going to be in the most controversial parable that Jesus ever told. It's the most misunderstood parable that Jesus, that we have recorded in the Bible. So I'm just going to jump right in. Is that okay? All right. This is one of my favorite parables. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 16. And I want you to buckle up because it is going to be a wild ride. Uh, Jesus is on a parable train. He's been telling parable after parable in the book of Luke. He's talked about the lost coins and the lost sheep and the prodigal son. And now he just launches into a new uh, parable. And he starts off like this. He says, there was a rich man who had a manager. And charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be a manager. So Jesus kind of starts this parable off on a downer, on like a, a sad note. But apparently there's this, this, this rich guy. He's a master. And he owns this huge estate. And one of his employees just isn't cutting it. 
And it doesn't say that this manager is being unethical. It doesn't say this manager is stealing any money. It just says that he's pretty bad at his job. So apparently some employee at the master's estate kind of approached the master and said, hey, you might want to look over Joe's numbers. I don't think he's the guy for the job. Uh, so the master does. He kind of looks over the numbers and he's like, this guy is costing me a fortune. So he brings him in for a meeting and says, hey, I hate to say this, but uh, this is just not going to work out. So we're going to have to let you go. Go ahead and, and pack up your belongings and get your books ready for the next guy that takes over your account. So the master uh, is, is facing unemployment. He gets fired. And some of you have felt the sting of unemployment before. It's, it's confusing, it's scary, it's devastating. But it was a much bigger deal back in Jesus' day because this manager actually lives on his master's estate. So not only is he facing unemployment, he's also facing homelessness. And so he's got to think of something, and he's got to think of something quick. It says this, the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. This is like white collar through and through. I have decided what to do so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. Now, he sits down, and he puts together a plan. And it's a very creative, genius plan that we're going to see in a second. But how do you think the average run-of-the-mill dishonest crook would have approached this situation? What, plan, what sort of plan would they put in place? they would have figured out how to get some cash. They would have figured out how to get some money in the bank for the hard days ahead. So they'd try to steal a few laptops or they'd siphon some money from their expense accounts. They'd try to get some money in the bank because money is important. Money is the most important thing, but not this guy. This guy's craftier. This guy's smarter than that. He knows that when you steal money, there is always either a paper trail or there's a witness. Some of you just nodded. I don't know what you guys do in your spare time. You're like, hey, man, that's right. Uh, but he knows there's always a paper trail or there's a witness to kind of tie it back. And he knows that money eventually runs out. So instead of prioritizing money, this guy prioritizes people. He prioritizes people instead of money. And he figures out a way to get people on his side without stealing any money whatsoever. He figures out a way to set himself up for years to come without touching a single penny of his master's money. So let's look at what he does. It says this, so summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write down 80. So you might not understand how creative this is, but he calls his master's debtors in one by one. Now we just see what he does with two people, but odds are he did this with every single one of the people that owed his master's money. And so he calls them in and he dramatically reduces the amount of money that they owe his boss. Now this is, this is so creative for lots of reasons. First, adjusting the amount that people owed his master was a normal, common, everyday thing because, you know, the prices and the values of different goods go up and down. So the price of wheat goes up and down. The price of oil goes up and down. You guys know the price of lumber, like, is going up and up and up and up. So it would have been a very normal thing to every quarter or periodically call the debtors in and adjust how much they owe, adjust those records. So the coworkers that worked with them would have not thought that anything was off. This was just business as normal. Second, notice who writes down the new amounts. Whose handwriting is it in? 
It's in the debtors. So there is nothing to to track these changes back to this dishonest manager. In fact, it actually has become like a legal document. They've signed their names on the dotted line. And so as the debtors walk out, each one of them is thinking, who in the world is that guy? That guy's awesome. If he ever runs into a hard time, if he ever needs some help, he can come to me because I will pay it forward. And it's important that he did this with multiple people because uh, back in these days, it was an honor and a shame culture. They lived by a certain set of honor codes. So if he just did this with one person, he could have refused to pay it forward when this guy needed it most. But because there's multiple people and they all live in the same town and they all know what this guy has done, they are bound to pay it forward, to to treat this guy nicely in the future. So this is like Ocean's 11 type stuff. This is creative, this is crafty. No money's been stolen. There's no paper trail. There's nothing to connect this guy with any crime. And yet, because of his creativity, Because of his innovation, because of this strategy, he set himself up for years to come. So this guy goes back to his boss and he's like, all right, here's the books. I've closed all the accounts. It's ready for the next guy. I'm going to go pack up. And so the master is like, okay, can't wait to get rid of this guy. Glad we fired him. And he starts thumbing through the books. And he notices some of these numbers are a little different than he remembers. It's like, I'm pretty sure... Bob owes me more than 50 measures of oil. Like last I checked, it was more than that. Or I'm pretty sure Cheryl owes me more than 80 bushels of wheat. In fact, every single one of these numbers is smaller than I remember. But, but the signatures are there. And the records are all correct. And it's all legal. And it's all business as usual. And at some point, a light bulb goes off. And he realized what's happened. He realized he's been bested. He knows what the manager has done, and he knows there's no way to prove it, and there's no way to change it. Now, what would you have done if you were that master? Gotten furious, right? I would have thrown some chairs. I would have hired like a private detective. I would have tried to fix this situation. But look at how the manager responds. In verse 8, it says, The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. He applauds him. He gives him a big high five. He commends him on his craftiness. He commends him on his cunning, on his creativity. The student has become the master. And he's not even angry. He's just in awe. It's like an anchorman. When that dog eats all the cheese, he's like, I'm not even mad. I'm just impressed, right? It's like this story I heard of some thieves in England. This really happened a few years ago. It was in Liverpool. Uh, They stole a couple's car out of their driveway. And so the couple kind of freaks out, calls the police. They search all over the city, can't find it. A few days later, the car shows back up in their driveway and it is in pristine condition. And there is a note and an envelope on the driver's seat and the note says, hey, sorry we stole your car. Uh, We were in need of it. Sorry if if we caused uh, any harm, but we returned it better than when we found it. So we changed the oil. There's gas in the gas tank. We got it detailed. In fact, here's two tickets to the theater later in the week. Compliments of us. Sorry for any inconvenience. So the couple's like, well, no harm, no foul, free oil change, that's cool. So later in the week, they go to the theater. What do you think happens? The thieves take everything out of their house while they're gone. Now, that's bad. That's robbery. That's theft. But that's creative. That's pretty impressive, right? That's kind of genius. And so that's what this guy has done. And as this guy packs up his desk, this manager packs up his desk and leaves the office, the master says to all of his coworkers, that is the craftiest, smartest, most ingenious crook 
that I have ever worked with in my life. And he commends him on his shrewdness, his creativity, not his dishonesty. That's why this parable is, is so debated. Not his dishonesty, that would be a problem, but his craftiness. And incidentally, you might not know this, but Jesus was really big on shrewdness as well. He talks about this a few times. Specifically in Matthew chapter 10, he says, he tells his disciples to be as shrewd as snakes, but as harmless as doves. See, Jesus doesn't want non-thinking, non-strategic status quo disciples. He wants disciples that think, that can strategize, that can innovate, but he just doesn't want them to use that creativity to harm other people. He wants them to use that creative side of their brain to expand God's kingdom and to love other people. And so at this point, Jesus breaks into this, this parable and I'm sure the disciples are like, this is the best parable yet. This is awesome. I wonder what happens next. But Jesus just sort of ends it, and he states plainly the truth that he's trying to get across. It's in verse 8. He says, The sons of this world are more shrewd or creative in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. So I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. That, that word's mammon. It just means the stuff of this world. Not evil money, but anything in this world. Use whatever you have at your disposal in this world so that when it fails, people may receive you into eternal dwellings. And that's kind of a long way of saying just this. This is Jesus' point. Non-Christians are often more creative in building their own little kingdoms than Christians are in building the kingdom of God. And Jesus just kind of states it. It's, it's just a fact. It's just the truth that he wishes wasn't the case. He says, when people try to start a business or start a nonprofit or improve the environment even, and it has nothing to do with Jesus, people are so innovative and they're so strategic and they're so creative, they actually put Christians to shame. And Christians have the most important mission in the world, and yet the world so often just shows us up in this area of creativity. That's Jesus' point. And I want to hang out here for a while because Jesus said these words over 2,000 years ago. Do you still think it's the case? You still think he's right? I do. I mean, let's think about it. When a group of business people or a nonprofit or an organization sit down to start a new business or to strike out in a new territory, what do they do? They do the research. And they do demographic studies and they study the market conditions and they list, make a list of every single opportunity. And they make a one year and a three year and a five year business plan and they utilize social media and word of mouth and marketing strategies and they apply themselves and they launch the business. And the dangers don't scare them away and the difficulties don't discourage them and they don't get distracted by these petty little things and they put an immense amount of effort and creativity and strategy into launching a business and they get it done. And all of this is just to make a little bit of money, which is not going to last for eternity. But when you look at the way that most, the average group of Christians makes a plan for seeing people come to know Jesus, it's radically different, isn't it? I'm going to bash the church a little bit, okay? I'm going to be a little hyperbolic. I'm not just talking about hope, but how many churches even have a plan to reach new people beyond just opening up the doors on Sunday? Very few. How many small groups have ever intentionally sat around a table in order to strategize and to plan and to plot to reach their neighbors or their workplaces or their pickleball teams or whatever? Very, very few. Some churches might send out postcards. 
few weeks before Christmas, a few weeks before Easter, but that's about it. And when new people actually do show up to our services or to our small groups, most churches don't have a plan of how to get them to come back, of how to assimilate them further, of how to get them to come back that second week. The world does a good job at that. When's the last time, have you ever accidentally given your phone number or your email to a checkout lady at a store in the mall? Raise your hand. Did you receive a text message or an email? Yes, immediately. I bought something off Etsy years ago as a Christmas present for Jenny, and I have received, I promise you, I've received no less than 17 emails a day from this company. And you're like, unsubscribe. I do, only to find out I'm just unsubscribing from the fresh new items of Tuesday morning mailing list. There's like a thousand more that I don't know about, right? But when someone visits a church or someone visits a small group and they don't come back the next week, do they get an email? Do they get a phone call? Probably not. Why? Because the people of this world are often more creative in building their own little kingdoms than Christians are at building God's kingdom. When a startup company encounters a problem or a nonprofit, how do they tackle that problem? Well, they work hard at defining what the problem is and then they look at the situation from all these different perspectives. They gather huge amounts of data. They hire professionals to help them sort through that data and make sense of that data. They make a list of all the different possibilities. They decide and they act and they keep at it until they fix that problem, until they've overcome that hurdle. But when a church encounters a problem, like they're not reaching new people for Jesus, what do they do? They form a committee. That forms three more committees. And they meet for two or three years. And they come back. What's this great idea you have for reaching new people? The best they can come up with is drums. Let's put drums into worship. The things with the cymbals and the tom-toms, we think that'll just have them coming to us in droves. And by that time, they've lost the opportunity. They have 17 more hurdles that they have to get through. Why? Because the people of this world are often more creative at building their own little kingdoms that aren't gonna last than Christians are at building God's kingdom. And that's just how good the people of this world are at making money. Don't even get me started on how good they are at keeping it. You know the IRS, guess how many employees the IRS has? 83,000 employees because they need all those, all those employees just to make sure that individuals, but especially corporations, pay their fair share in taxes, right? And, and they need all those people because the corporations are so ingenious. They're so creative at finding loopholes and workarounds. They use offshore accounts. They move the money around. They invest in real estate because their capital gains is kind of shielded there. Every year, the government has to add more and more employees. And every year, the corporations just get smarter and smarter. You know how many hurdles we face when we try to start campuses in different cities and different towns? It's very hard for us to find um, a building that's the size that we need for how big our campuses grow. I remember when the Apex campus was like 200 people. Look at it now, right? So it's hard to find those buildings. But also we're coming to find out that city governments aren't big fans of churches usually because they don't make any money off of them. So they've changed a lot of the zoning laws and it's very, very hard to start a church in certain cities, especially around the triangle. That's what we're finding. And your average church would, would come up to those hurdles, those zoning laws and all that sort of stuff, lack of buildings, and they'd think, well, I guess God doesn't want us to move into this town. Maybe we'll try some different city. Maybe we'll just give up. But what Jesus is saying is, guys, get creative. 
Get strategic. I think there should be Christian real estate investors that build these multi-use buildings and just rent them out to every nonprofit and church that they could find. There should be Christian lawyers studying and discerning these zoning laws. There should be Christian uh, city board members voting against these zoning laws. I would love it if I opened up the newspaper one day only to see that Fuquay or Nightdale or wherever had to add more city employees because more and more churches were getting into the town. That's the way that it's to be. That's what Jesus is talking about here. Craig Rochelle, a famous pastor, he says this, several hundred years ago, the church was the center of innovation. It was the epicenter of community. It drove the arts. Somewhere along the line, we delegated innovation to Apple. We handed off creativity to Hollywood. We said to Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, you guys can have community. We allowed the government to begin meeting the needs of the poor when we, the church, are the best equipped organization to do all of that and far more. That's what Jesus is talking about. That's that extra tool in our tool belts, the creative side of our brains. So why is there this huge disconnect? What is it about us where we can go into a business environment or a PTA or a school board and we're so creative and we're so strategic and we're so willing to risk, but the moment we step into a church, it's like that side of our brain just kind of cuts off. Why is that? I've been thinking about this for years and uh, I've come to the conclusion after lots and lots of conversations with people, I think that our problem is that we, I think especially in the American church, have just internalized some fun, fundamental misunderstandings about the church. Not what the church is, but about how it functions, about what our role in the church should be. And I was reminded of this. Uh, we sold our house that we've been living in for a few years uh, in March. Surprise, there's no other houses to buy. We didn't know that. So we're building a house. And while we're building, uh, we're renting a house. And I have just been reminded of the pleasures of renting. It's phenomenal. Very different than owning. There's a difference between those two. Uh, the first week we moved in, our sliding glass door broke. It like, came off the tracks. And I'm like, ah. So I get out the WD-40, and I get down and get it off the tracks. And I'm looking at YouTube videos. And about 30 minutes in, I'm like, it's not my door. It's not my problem. I can call the landlord. So I called the landlord. And that's the amazing thing about renting. None of this stuff is mine. So the sink breaks, call the landlord. The alarm system breaks, you call the landlord. But there's some negatives as well. We can't, we can't really make this house that we're renting into a true home. Right? We're not painting the walls. We're not hanging light fixtures. We're even kind of hesitant to, to hang up family pictures. We certainly don't lay in bed at night dreaming and coming up with creative ideas of how to use this house. But with the house that we're building, we're the owners. So we're involved in the design process. We're in, involved in where the walls are, how they're painted. And we certainly do lay in bed at night, me and my wife, and just dream up what kind of house this could be for our family and our neighbors and our family and friends. And uh, we have these silly little dreams, but dreams about the backyard. We're going to get a fence and a fire pit and maybe a screened-in front porch. But that, that dreaming, that creativity happens because we're the owners, right? And I think that for many years, many of us have looked at the church with this renter's mentality. This is someone else's organization. It's not mine. I'm just here to kind of enjoy the benefits. I stop in from time to time to occasionally consume the goods and services that they have to offer. But the pastors, the church staff, they're the ones that are the owners. 
I think that's part of the reason we don't spend time dreaming about what the church could be one day. We don't apply our creativity to building and strengthening uh, what the church is. But in the Bible, it actually says the exact opposite. I don't know if you've heard of Ephesians uh, 4, if you've heard the verse in Ephesians 4, but it's a verse that I go back to over and over and over again. And it's in this chapter where Paul's talking about the fact that Jesus came to earth and started this amazing movement called the church. And after he, he died, he's ascending. And it's almost this weird picture of Jesus throwing down gifts to the church so that it has what it needs to accomplish its mission. And it says this, and he gave as gifts the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. And those are what I would consider the full-time ministers, the vocational ministry workers, the pastors, uh, the staff members here. Those are the full-time people. Now, why did he give them to the church? To do the ministry? No, it says this. He gave the church those people to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. And so as weird as it may sound, and it's in other verses as well, our job as pastors and staff members is not to do the ministry. Our job is to do everything in our power to equip you to do the work of ministry, to expand God's kingdom, to grow God's family. Our job is to come alongside of you, to resource you, to assist you as you go out into the neighborhoods and the workplaces and the coffee houses and the sports field to expand God's church. It's like what, uh, what's Home Depot's tagline? You can do it, we can help. That's how the church was meant to function. And I think for the past 50 years, at least in America, we've operated from the opposite uh, paradigm. And, it's, and if that's the mentality, that we're not the, the owners, we're just renters, that we pay the staff to do ministry, we bring people to the staff's events and ministries, if that's the mentality, then of course our creativity is gonna be stifled. Of course, we're not going to dream big. Of course, we're not going to use that creative side of our brain. But I need you to hear this. The moment that you become a mission partner here at Hope, it's what we call members, or even the moment you walk into those doors at one of our campuses or online and you're like, I'm in. I want to be a part of this. Hope Community Church becomes your church. It's yours. It's almost like we hand the symbolic key of ownership to you. I say it every time I dismiss a congregation at one of our campuses. You're not leaving the church. You are the church. And if that's the case, then all these different misconceptions about how the church should function just begin falling apart. Like the greatest ideas for ministry, the most creative ideas are not up here on the stage. They're out there in the congregation. You guys are the most creative and strategic bunch. I know I kind of beat up on the church earlier, but you guys are amazing. I'll never forget when we started our Garner campus. Uh, I was involved for the first few months there, and I had dozens of people come up to me every single week with these amazing ideas. You know, we have a person that owns a coffee shop, and we have a band as well, so we could invite people there just idea after idea after idea. Uh, this week, a member at the Raleigh campus sent me an email and there's a really cool movie that elementary school students, age students are really loving. It's kind of like a musical. It's about summer camp. I don't know what it's called. So she, she sent me a plan for an interactive movie night outreach. And it was genius. Like, she was like, here's where we throw the beach balls and here's where the glow sticks go off and here's where we get the volunteers and it's this interactive thing that we can partner with Dillard Drive Elementary or some other elementary schools that we partner with in Project Classroom. And I showed it to our kids' city director here at the Raleigh campus and she was like, this is phenomenal. I would have never thought of this in a million years. 
See, the best ideas are in the congregation. Now, I will say, you can take this a little too far. Now, <laughs> if I was preaching at a Baptist church, I would not have to say this at all. But because it's hope, I feel the need to do this. When we started a church in Asheville, uh, we had two guys move up to help us start the church. One wasn't even a believer, and one was very, very young in, in his faith. They just loved our group of people. They loved what we were all about, so they moved up to Asheville. And the first few weeks that we started church, we saw this huge influx of young people. And it was always these two guys bringing them into church. I'm like, this is awesome. So I pull them aside after church one week. I'm like, what are you guys doing? Like, how are you getting all these people to come? And they're like, well, we have this new thing called Bowling Bible. And I was like, Bowling Bible, like you do a Bible study in a bowling ring? He's like, no, like, like smoke a bowl. Like we, we give people <laughs> free weed if they stay for a Bible study and they come to church afterwards. True story. And in my mind, I'm like, you can't do that. And then I see the new people and I'm like, well, maybe you can. And I try to think of some Hebrew words I could twist to make this allowable. And that's how we grew so much our first year. No, no, no. I told him you can't do that. You have to pick something not, not illegal. Try like maybe beer, maybe some chili. I would appreciate that. But so don't take it too far. But, you know, I, I, got a, I sat down with a lady a few weeks ago. And she had recently moved into a retirement village. And uh, from a really, like, taxing job, she kind of waited too long, she said. And she moved in, and she started a Bible study. And the interest was so high, she had to start another Bible study. And then she thought, well, these people don't leave that often. Many of them can't drive. They don't have family in town. So they had a church service for Christmas, and it was well attended. So they had another church service in the dining hall of this retirement village during Easter. And we met, and she's like, would you mind coming to speak at it, like, monthly? Uh, we're going to start monthly church services. And so I preached there last night, and it was so cool to see 40 or 50 people that will never enter the doors of Hope Community Church being reached by the gospel because of the creativity, because of the idea that was in the congregation. The greatest ideas are in the congregation. That also means the greatest opportunities are outside these church doors. Now, hear me. I love Sundays. I'm a weekend guy. I love the worship experiences that we provide. I think we're commanded to meet together and to study God's word and to worship and just be reminded of who God is. But if the picture of the church that we see in Acts is any indication, that is just one small piece of a much larger puzzle. It's just one small part of a much larger plan. I view the weekend as kind of two things. One, it's here to equip you guys. It's here to remind you of the amazing grace that God has for you, to remind you of all that Jesus is for you and can do for you, here to remind you of, of the empowering of the Holy Spirit that you have. So it's here to equip you. It's also um, here to, to be a tool for you to use. So our hope is that you can always bring a neighbor or always bring a friend in through these doors and they'll feel loved and they will feel uh, the hope that we have in Jesus. But this is only one out of 112 waking hours that we have. Who do you think knows more people that need to know the gospel of Jesus Christ? The staff members or you guys? You guys. You're the ones that rub shoulders with and work alongside of and play alongside of people that desperately need to hear about their love, the, the love that the Heavenly Father has for them. And they may never enter the doors of this church. So, so what are we going to do? Are we going to wait for them to come to us? No. We go out to them, right? 
And that's the mindset that we have to get in if we want to be creative, if we want to, to unleash that creative side of our brain to plot and plan and strategize and expand God's kingdom. We have to tear down these false beliefs that we've kind of internalized. Listen, ministry doesn't have to happen in this building. A pastor doesn't have to be present. A stage announcement or a Facebook post does not have to be made. Listen to this. The people that you guys reach don't ever have to come into these doors. We want to serve people before they get to us, and we want to continue serving after they come to us, but we realize that some people will never, ever come into these doors, and that's fine. We're all about the church with a capital C. There's some phenomenal churches in the city, and we know we have no hope of reaching the triangle unless we partner with them. So if someone that you work with or someone that you do a hobby with begins a relationship with Jesus because of the relationship they have with you, and they go to Colonial down the street, or to Providence, or to Summit, or to The Point, or to one of the dozens of amazing gospel-proclaiming, Bible-believing churches, praise God. That's still a win. That still counts, right? And when you start to tear down these preconceptions, the creative juices start flowing, and the dreams just start to get bigger and bigger, and the sky's the limit. And I'm so passionate about this because I really do believe that our church and really every church in America, we're really finding ourselves at a crossroads after the craziness of 2020. And we're finding that ministries that worked really, really well 20 years ago, 10 years ago, even like in 2019, are not working that well nowadays because of COVID, because of the political climate, because lots of stuff. And so we as a church can continue to just do what we've done in the past, which has been amazing, and God's used it. Look at what he's done. Or we can realize the new situation that we find ourselves in, post-COVID, politics. It's getting harder and harder to teach publicly some of what the Bible has to say, especially about gender and sexuality and that sort of stuff. We can realize that, and we can adjust. And we can dream new dreams. And we, get, and we can get creative. And the truth is, and this is just common sense, if we just prioritize the weekend service or we just prioritize uh, the ministries that the people here, the events that we put on, we have no hope of ever reaching the triangle. And it's just simple math. I mean, if every single church in the triangle, just in the Raleigh-Durham Chapel Hill area, was completely full to capacity every single weekend, how many people is that? 100,000? I mean, super generous 200,000? That's 5% of the triangle. But if every single one of you at all the churches in the triangle strategized and got creative and got intentional and plotted and planned and made it a priority to just reach one person per year, just give one person the opportunity to hear and respond to the gospel, and just our church alone, next year we'd be at somewhere around 20,000. And the next year we'd be at 40,000. And the next year we'd be at 80,000. And the next year 160,000. And the next year, my math is not good enough to continue, but in eight years, we would be at 2.5 million, which is the population of the triangle. Do you believe that this is possible? I do. That's why I'm devoting my life to this amazing mission and you amazing people. And you add your creativity 
to the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit that's inside each one of you and the promise that Jesus made that I will build my church and the gates of hell will not defend it. That's a recipe for success, right? So we got a little bit of treasure. We got a little bit of time. We have a whole lot of creativity. And we got a city to reach and a world to change. So what are we gonna do about it? You tell me. Father, thank you for your word. Would you just unleash your spirit in a new way? <laughs> Would every single person listening at our campuses and online just feel, feel first the weight of the lostness of our city and take ownership of that? And would they feel just the freedom to go and tackle it in their own little ways? Being a mom, <laughs> being a business person, working at a school, being an engineer, being an artist, a musician, would you just give us idea after idea after idea? So Spirit, we just say we're ready. We want you to take the lead, empower us. And I pray that we would see this vision to reach the triangle change will become a reality in our day. And it's in the beautiful and powerful name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Hope Podcast. We appreciate you joining us as we tackle issues facing our modern world from a biblical perspective. To make sure you don't miss a message, please take a moment and hit the subscribe button. Also, if you're new to Hope and want to check out what we're about and how to be a part of our community, Go to our next steps at gethope.net slash next. Let us know your story because we'd love to connect with you.